The fourth chapter of Genesis is the place we'll find our text. It ought to be easy to find. Thankful for Royce White and for his tremendous help today. Jim Hansford and uh, his family are on vacation today. And they will be with us two more Sundays. On the 15th, we will have an ordination service in the evening to uh, ordain Jim Hansford to the, uh, to the ministry. I need a little more volume, I think, Paul. Next Sunday, R.C. Miller will be preaching for us here. I, I will be here, but R.C. has asked me to let him preach. He grew up in this church, and 50 years ago, next Sunday, he was ordained. And he's asked for the privilege of preaching on the day of his ordination, the anniversary of his ordination, 50 years ago. R.C. Miller is retired now and is living in Chickasha, and I think we're going to have a good time next Sunday as he comes to speak to us. When I was in um, about intermediates training union, one of the things that we um, enjoyed doing was having a sword drill. You know, that's uh, where you try to find a scripture reference first. And so the... Um, training union leader would get us all lined up there and she would say attention and we'd get our Bibles ready. Everybody eager. Draw swords and you had to have your um, uh, top, your right hand on the top of the Bible and your left hand on the bottom, I think, or it might have been your left hand on the top. And she would give this scripture reference and then say charge and everybody would try to find that verse of scripture. And the first one, you know, take a step forward and uh, was the hero of the night, you know. One night I remember she gave this reference, Hezekiah 4-3 and we charged. It, it seemed like it ought to be over between Zechariah and Malachi somewhere. I knew I'd heard of it. And we were just tearing our Bibles apart trying to find that verse until she told us that uh, there is no Bible book named Hezekiah. I want to tell you, I want to do a little Bible quiz with you this morning. And, uh, and it's on the up and up. It's not a trick. I want you to tell me the name of Adam's other son. There is Cain and Abel. What's the other son name? Don't look now. I saw you checking that reference out. I, I, uh, I, asked, I asked 10 people in the hall this morning, uh, name Adam's other son, and eight got it wrong. Well, let me ask the question another way, and maybe it'll help us. Who was Seth? Now all together, Adam's other son. And about all we know about him is found in the fourth chapter of Genesis, verses 25 and 26. I want you to find that and follow as I read. And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel. For Cain killed him, and to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
A few years ago, Larry Cole was playing defensive end for the Dallas Cowboys. He, he was a good, steady player, but he didn't get much notoriety. He didn't get much pub, they call it. He played in the shadows of guys like Roger Staubach and uh, Charlie Waters and, uh, and uh, Harvey Martin and, and Randy White. And so old Bubba organized what he called the Zero Club. And the Zero Club was made up of all those guys that played every Sunday but were hardly even noticed, you know, never got any notoriety. And you'd forget their names after you, you know, laid down your program. Seth could have been a charter member of the Zero Club. Occasionally, I'll go preach a revival in some town about the size of Durant, and the preacher will meet me at the airport, and, or he'll come to the motel room, and we'll get talking about the church. Not all the time, but occasionally, he'll say, I think you're going to like our church. We got the cream of the crop in our church. I mean, all the bigs come to our church. Old so-and-so does this, and he'll tell me how much money he's worth, and, and we got the city council and the mayor, and, and we even got a representative in the state government in our church. And I just can't resist saying, I guess all the rest of the folks in the church are just common people like you and me. For I suspect that most of the people who make up the body called the church is made up of Seths who are destined to obscurity. And for that reason, I think the obscurity of Seth is so instructive to us today. In the first place, Seth's obscurity illustrates the world's tendency to recognize the very bad and the very good and ignore the ordinary individual. Anybody who knows anything about the Bible knows Cain. In this day of violence and anti-heroes, we're actually drawn to this man. He shed his brother's blood. He was a murderer. He was marked by God for his own protection, an early sign of grace. And he was made a nomad and a fugitive from justice, and that's not hard to romanticize. As a matter of fact, that kind of stuff makes long-running television serials. That, that, that kind of information makes box office hits. It's the kind of manuscripts that sell uh, these paperback novels by the millions. For we're actually attracted to evil. Blake expressed what some people know secretly, that active evil is better than passive good. In other words, it's better to be really bad than to be ignored. And so Cain was really bad. He was the first murderer on record. If the mass media had been alive in his days, he would have made the 10 o'clock report. Iola would have been talking about him. And he would have made the front page of the morning news. Everybody who knows anything knows Cain. And anybody who knows anything about the Bible knows Abel. He was a very good man. 
In fact, his righteousness was so good that it incited the jealousy of his own brother. He was so good that his offering was acceptable and no one can ascend into the holy place except with pure hands, with clean hands and a pure heart. He was really good. As a matter of fact, he made God's hall of fame that's in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Anybody who knows anything about the Bible knows this man and looks upon his life as one of relative innocence and positive good, but nobody knows Seth. I mean, he's neither very good nor very bad. He's just plain old vanilla ordinary, and nobody knows him. And the Scripture says that to him was born a son, and he named that son Enosh and disappeared from the record. For the tendency of the world is to notice the very bad and the very good and ignore the ordinary. There's a second instruction from the obscurity of Seth, and it's this. His obscurity reminds us of our own obscurity. When I read a story and you, we have a way of identifying with one of the characters. We say, I'm like him or I'm like her. When I read this, this story, I put my finger right on Seth's name and say, I'm like him. There have been flashes of anger in my life. Ask my wife. I sometimes lose my temper, but not to the point of murder. I would never murder my brother. And there have been moments of goodness in my life. I'm not so devout as, as Savonarola or Mother Teresa. There have been moments of goodness, but not the kind of goodness and devotion and commitment, I'm sad to confess, that would arouse the envy of someone else. No, I'm just like most of you. I'm just a Seth. Yep, that's us. But you know, that's all right. There is a kind of a striving for greatness which gives expression to, to legitimate ambition. But there is a striving for greatness which is really an insane desire to be something we'll never be and to have something we'll never have. Let's face it, most of us are children of Seth destined to obscurity. There are not many people here this morning that would ever command the acclaim and affection and devotion of the multitudes because of his oratory or his ability to persuade. But does that mean we're to toss and turn on beds of discontent and envy? There are thousands of professors of philosophy teaching philosophy to eager students. But I ask you to name five this morning that are well known. What about the rest of them? Are they to sulk in rent resented obscurity? There are tens of thousands of nurses who are serving earnestly in our country today. But if you were to ask someone cold, could you name a nurse? He'd probably name Florence Nightingale. But what about all the rest of us? Are we to resent that? No, we're to accept the fact that we'll always be Seth. Now I'm not talking about resignation. Resignation is 
resignation recognizes mediocrity, even glorifies it. I'm talking about a kind of healthy contentment and acceptance of the fact that God has a special place for you and it may not be a place of prominence. Frank Robinson played the outfield for the Cincinnati Reds. He was traded to the Baltimore Orioles for pitcher Milt Pappas and an unnamed, underlined, unnamed outfielder. Now Frank Robinson went on to stardom. He won the Triple Crown, the most valuable player. He's being inducted today in the Hall of Fame. Mill Pappas' sore arm wore out in a couple of years. But the man that intrigues me is that unnamed outfielder. I mean, you talk about obscurity. Can you imagine what, it must have, what he must have thought the next morning when he turned to the sports page to see if they spelled his name correctly and found out they didn't even print it? And what about his son? Hey, Dad, as he turned through the pages of the sports page, don't they know your name? Don't they care? Oh, we hate that, don't we? We resent the fact that our name is not in print and we try to compensate for our obscurity. And so we lay on our titles and we fancy up our stationery and we talk up our achievements and we'll do anything short of murder just to keep up with the Cains and the Abels. And so Seth arrived on the scene, gave birth to a son and disappeared and that's the way it's going to be for most of us. And the question is this morning, is this indisputable and largely unchangeable fact going to make us perpetually discontented with our lot? The question is this morning, have you found your place? I heard a little, about a little boy who was always forgetting where he placed things. I mean, he lost everything. So one night he decided he'd just write it out, you know, so he'd know where it was the next morning, make an inventory. So he put it down, wrote to himself, remember, your shoes are under the bed, your clothes are on the chair, your, your hat, your cap is hanging up in the closet, your baseball cards, change, and pocket knife are on the bureau, and you are in bed. The next morning he got up and everything was just like the inventory. He found everything, but when he looked in bed, he wasn't there and never found himself. Now, I want you to know that our world is wall to wall with little boys and little girls who have lived half their life looking for themselves and have never found their place because they're not willing to be children of Seth. There's a third thing this thing teaches us, this text. And that is the tremendous importance of unimportant people in the scheme of God. Isn't it amazing that God would use an unspectacular Seth and I just was reading at this morning trying to find something new to say that I didn't have prepared already. And I noticed that phrase for the first time, and men began to turn to the Lord. 
I mean he used Seth to turn men to God. And he used a group of nomads to be his chosen people. And every Old Testament prophet is an unlikely choice from Amos the fig masher to Jonah the rebel. And he chose a, a, a stable over a palace and a cross over the throne. And what about the church? What was it like? This body of Christ left in the world, this instrument of the gospel's redemption, what was the church like? Paul said, not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth were chosen. Just Seth's. Seemed like a strange choice, doesn't it? That God would choose soiled creatures right from the slums of sin, blundering and bungling His plan time and time again. But isn't it amazing that God uses the sets of the earth to turn men to God? And thank God for that. And there's an example of it. In the 16th chapter of Romans, if you have your Bible, just flip to that. I want you to notice something with me. I may ask you to pronounce some of these names. Now, if you, if you are looking for a more strategically placed church, there would not be one more strategic than the First Baptist Church of Rome. I mean, right there in the eye of the hurricane was this church. Now, because it was so strategic and so important to the work of God in that ancient world, in that pagan world, surely he's going to have some superheroes there. No. They're all named Seth, they're just spelled differently. There is in verse 3, Epinetus, you've heard of him. It may be a her, I'm not going to... There's Andronicus and Junius. In verse 8, there's Ampliatus and Urbanus and Stachius and Apelles and Aristobulus and Tryphania and Tryphosa. And on and on it goes, and you don't know whether I pronounced them correctly or not. You've never heard of them either. either. And probably when you do your daily Bible readings and you come to the 16th chapter of Romans, you just flip right on past that. And if you want to count the number of people that are mentioned there, you'll notice that there's not many of them and the church was spreading like wildfire. You know what that says to me? It says that most of them weren't even named. So in the Roman amphitheater in the, in the heart and the eye of the hurricane, there was this body of nobodies to spread the gospel to the world because God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise and the weak things to confound the mighty and the base and the despised things He's chosen in order that He might take that which is not, says Paul, and nullify the things which are. What a word. 
that in the scheme and the plan of God, you have a strategic place, you named Seth. Who are the Seths? They're the people who, sit in, who, who come to this church every, every time we have church, but are never noticed. I was talking the other day about a Seth. I won't call his name, but I was talking about a Seth here in our church. We were, I was talking to another guy about something totally uh, disconnected with church, believe it or not. And we were just talking. I mentioned this guy's name. He said, I don't believe I know him. I said, yeah, you know him. He said, no, my name sounds familiar, but I don't guess I know him. I said, well, he's in church every Sunday. He sits right over there. I pointed where he sit, and I told what he looked like. Oh, yeah, he said. I, I know who he is. He said, I see him every Sunday, and I've been so impressed by him. I just didn't know his name. I said, his name is Seth. He's the person whose views are never sought, and yet you can count on your on one hand, the times he's missed this year. He's a person who never makes the news, but he, 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 he reads it. He knows nothing about capital gain, but he puts a deposit in his saving account. He's devoted to his children, and he loves his wife. And his demands on life are, are small, and his joys run deep. And when he disappears from the scene, few will even notice it. But when he enters the other side, it'll be to the sound of trumpets, for of such is the kingdom of God. God really must love Seth. He made so many of us. And that has relevance on this day in our church, on a day when we, when we underscore the titles and we fancy up the, the uh, stationery and we, and we laud position and program and wealth. You know what it says to me? It says that the weakest of us all are essential. Are you still awake? Shake your head like that. Now, there you are. The weakest of us all are essential. You know what the labyrinth mechanism is? The labyrinth mechanism? You know what that is? You ever seen one? Let's play like you're doing a, a uh, it prays to increase your word power in a Reader's Digest, and you've got a multiple choice. Has the word, labyrinth mechanism, is related to A, video games, B, the space program, C, the human body, D, television. If you guessed C, you got it, the human body. The labyrinth, the labyrinth mechanism is that little gizmo in the inner ear there. You've never seen it. You didn't even know it. But I guarantee you, you've never been sick until something goes wrong with the labyrinth mechanism. Then you don't know whether you're standing on your head or not because that's, that's a little inner ear gizmo that keeps the whole thing afloat, you know. Now, there are saths who make up the body of Christ that we, don't, we, we never see, we never know. But I tell you, we're sick if, we, if we're without them. For in the plan of God, He has chosen the base things to confound the mighty. Oh, I like that idea. One last thought. 
And that thought is this. The contribution that I will make to my world will be a contribution made not by me, but through me. Now, now, Eve remembered the promise of God when he cursed the serpent in the fall. And he said to Eve, of your seed, I'm going to bring someone of your seed that will bruise the serpent's head. That was a messianic promise. That's a forecast of Jesus. He did bruise his head, bruised his heel to be sure, but bruised his head. And now Eve must have thought, how in the world is he going to do that? Keep that promise. Because Abel is dead and Cain is gone. A vagabond. How's he going to keep his promise? God said, this is how I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to keep it through Cain, through Seth. I'm going to keep it through Seth. I I want you to hear me now. Don't let that little slip of the tongue get you off. Let's hear this. God has made a promise to this world and He's looking for a Seth through whom He can keep that promise. He doesn't necessarily need somebody with great ability. He just needs somebody through whom He can keep His promise to a world. He just needs a heart through whom He can love. He just needs a life through whom He can shine to a darkened, diseased world. He's just looking for somebody to keep His promise through. And that says to me that my contribution to the world, if it lasts, will only be that contribution that God makes through me. And that has relevance. The relevance is this, that the the most important thing about a person's life is Jesus Christ. If I miss Jesus, if I miss His plan, I miss life. And there are some who have tragically missed it. God just wants to come into your life and, and, and bless the world through it. And, 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 and you've missed your destiny. And so God looked on that violent world. Listen to this, now I'm through. He looked on that violent world where a man would kill his own brother and it grieved him. And he fought. Somehow, I've got to bring peace to this world and redemption. I've got to keep my promise. So I'm going to have to raise up a Seth to do it. Now, that world was violent because a man could kill his brother with a knife. Our world is so violent, we kill millions with a bomb. Do you know what would happen if they dropped the atomic bomb on Sherman, Texas, that far away? You know, the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima was 1/80th of a megaton, and the Soviets have bombs in the range of 20 megatons. They could create this morning a million 360,000 Hiroshimas at one time with 17,000 megatons pointed at the United States. You know what would happen if they dropped a bomb on on Sherman, Texas? That far away. There would be a light brighter than the sun for 30 seconds. 
And in that period of time, in the strike area, people and things would be hurled into the air. Buildings would collapse in the street and people would be incinerated where they stood. Folks in fallout shelters would be cremated. There is a ball of fire that attends the dropping, the strike force of the atomic bombs six miles in diameter that would boil the city, broil the city alive. And everything made out of metal and glass would melt on the spot and bodies would be reduced to ashes. And there would be a force of air extending outward from the strike area out to the, to the circumference at a rate of 400 miles per hour, leveling everything in its path. And then there would begin, because of ruptured gas lines and gas tanks, an inferno of fire that would burn this earth. And depending upon the prevailing wind, half of the people, one-tenth of the people of the United States would die that day. Oh, how it must grieve God as He looks upon the canes of the earth shedding their brother's blood and how He must yearn to say, if I had a Seth, through Him I would bring men to redemption. Robert Slocum was an engineer for NASA. He said, I became convinced that Jesus Christ was the God behind the physical universe. And so the question was no longer, is God real? Do I think God is real? The question became, does God think I'm real? I begin to place my life in the hands of God, said Robert Slocum, and I begin to set out to discover what it meant to serve Him. I'm going to ask you this morning, you who are Seths, members of the Zero Club who have met for our annual meeting, our weekly meeting, I'm going to ask you this morning to place your hand, life in the hand of God and begin to discover what it means to serve Him. And I'm preaching to young people this morning to whom God is said in days past, I want you as a preacher or a missionary. God is in the business of discovering someone through whom He can bless His world and love His world. And when the Seths say, Here am I, Lord, send me, the passage will come to its fulfillment and the people will begin to turn to the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we have cursed and resented our obscurity. We have wanted to be what we are not and were never meant to be. And we have discovered today the fact that all you want is just a life 
through whom you can live and love and bless and redeem, heal. Let us say this morning, help us to say with Jesus that I have been ordained to bring sight to the blind, to free the captive, to bring healing, to set at liberty those who are bound. I have been ordained as a Seth through whom this world would have its redemption. And help us to hear this morning that this world waits with eager longing for the coming of the sons of God. I pray this morning, Father, that you'll put your finger upon our heart and say to us, I want you in commitment, in devotion, in surrender. I want you in this church. I want you in my kingdom. I've come for you to be a part of my plan. And help us to say, yes, Lord, I will, I will, I will. So that the kingdom will be extended and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In a moment, we're going to give an invitation hymn. The first invitation is for you to come claiming Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe you've accepted Christ in Bible school and you want to come publicly come forward today the second invitation is for Christian people to respond for rededication of life or church membership we have prayed for you the Spirit of God has spoken to you God calls you now the response